that's one of the challenges when you preach on uh, Jesus' return and the end of time, is that there's this um, confusing, bewildering mix of things. Um, there are multiple interpretive strategies uh, from different parts of Scripture. Um, there are multiple popular Christian fiction series which purport to be theology, uh, but which are really best read as, I'll allow you to give them a grade, kind of Christian fiction thrillers. Um, and then there's just this sense of, so what? Right? What do we do about it now? It's interesting to me, um, over the last uh, quarter, really, as a church, we've been walking through what we believe. And so we spent really the whole of June, and I was here for part of it, talking about um, what's the world we inhabit like? Right? It began with God is personal. He's knowable. He's intimate. He desires to be in relationship. And we're created as people with dignity in his image, designed to relate to him and to one another and to be his hand and arm, declaring that he reigns wherever we go in the world. But unfortunately, because of our sinful choices to choose for ourselves what's best rather than relying on what God says is best, our relationships with one another and with God have been disrupted. The world itself is in upheaval. It's not as God intended it should be. And the one hope we have is that there's a triune God out there who already exists in relationship with himself, who so desperately loves the creation and the people that he made that he intends to redeem him. That was the whole of June. And everything that we do as a people can be defined by this is how we understand reality. God made this world. He loves it. He invited us to participate with him in it. And it's to, it's to be diverse. It's to be relational. It's to be honoring him. It's to bring delight to him and the people around us. But because the world is so messed up, we spent the whole of July almost talking about this problem and how God was going to solve it. Because we live in a beautiful world that's obviously critically broken. And into that world, this person comes, Jesus Christ, who was both God fully and also fully human, so he could identify with us in all of our weakness, our brokenness. He could understand the temptations that we face and is the perfect representative of who we are. And yet he's fully God, so he alone is able to bring and restore creation wherever he goes. So wherever he goes, creation is brought back to harmony. Storms cease. Ill people are healed. Relationships are mended. And then he dies in our place and on our behalf at the cross so that God can demonstrate the fullness of who he is. He demonstrates his anger and fury against sin, all that disrupts our relationship with him, with one another, and with his creation by judging it and saying, those who commit sin have to die. But then he demonstrates his beautiful wisdom and his love and his mercy by saying, I will take the punishment on myself. Because as the fully human and fully God person, Jesus Christ, he can both bear the judgment and he's the perfect representative for that judgment. Therefore, we live in this environment of grace. Nothing you can do can make God love you anything, any more deeply, more thoroughly than he already does. Nothing you can do can so add to the sin that he's already seen that he goes, oh, Jesus wasn't enough for that. I wish we could do something else. But instead, with great delight and great freedom, we can approach him and engage with him. Worrying not about what we can contribute or what holds us back, but looking instead to the person of Jesus Christ, which is why that song, In Christ Alone, is such a fantastic song. 
In Christ alone, all of our hope is found, all of our freedom is found, all of our joy is found. And that was the whole of the month of July. In this broken world that God desires to redeem, we have freedom to engage with God and to engage in his purposes. We have nothing to be afraid of. And then as uh, you finished July and moved into August, uh, as a congregation we looked at, so how do we participate in that? And so we spent two weeks on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals who God is by giving us the scriptures and allowing our eyes to be open to see his presence, sanctifying us, literally changing us from the inside so that we begin to look more and more like the God we worship and serve. We become Christ-like. The way I think of it is um, having a vague biology background because I was one of those um, failed pre-meds. I mean, I just didn't want to do it. Um, much to the disappointment of my family, my dad's visiting this week, which is why I'm reflecting again on being a failed pre-med um, in his mind. Uh, as I told you, I was you know, graduating from law school, literally had my diploma in one hand, my cap and gown on, and he still said that day, you know, if you want to go to medical school, I'll pay for it. Um, but I like to think of the Holy Spirit a little bit like a virus, but in a good way. Right? What a virus does is it enters um, your body, takes over one of your cells, and begins to replicate its own DNA within you which is how it replicates. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's literally rebuilding a new DNA within us. And as that genotype begins to multiply, it begins to um, express itself. The phenotype, right, is that we begin to look more and more like Jesus. Until one day, God promises, you will stand before me, perfect in Christ-likeness. And when I see you, I will see reflected in you, myself, my son. And that's what it means then when we gather together as a community. That the people of God, gathered together from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, have come together, work celebrating with one another um, as a community what God has done and what God is continuing to do within us, and then witnessing to the power of the Holy Spirit around us. With the hope that, and that's where Dick ended, I think, uh, two weeks ago, that after it all ends, we will be with Jesus. And I trust where Dick went with it was... For those of us who pass, entry into Jesus' presence without fear, without remorse, without regret, but with great joy is the promise before us. This has been particularly on my mind um, because on Wednesday, um, a woman I know from Chicago passed away. She was 36 years old. Um, uh, Interstitial lung disease, just eventually just could not breathe anymore. She leaves behind a husband, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. Um, and her husband wrote a letter that was distributed among family and friends where he said, you know, um, we've decided uh, if she doesn't pass before that on Thursday, it would have been her 35th birthday, we are going to allow her to die that day because the best birthday present I could give her is to allow her to be in Jesus' presence fully. And he said, um, several people said, you don't really love your wife if you can say that. And he said, what they don't understand is the deep hope I have in Jesus. Um, That... I believe the thing that she longed for more thoroughly than anything else in this life, the thing that she lived for and that she would wish to testify to, is that her ultimate desire is to glorify Jesus in her life and her death. And that's what we're going to do. Um, And he said, I weep at the loss for myself and for my two daughters, but I celebrate what God is going to do. And I have deep hope in that. And so we come to the end. Because you could take all of the facts that we've heard over the last quarter and say, well, that's nice, it's comforting here and now, but what does it ultimately matter?
It's interesting to me that Rob, we spent um, together as a congregation three months walking through what we believe. One of the earliest creeds of the Christian church was Jesus Christ has died, Jesus Christ has risen, Jesus will come again. And for the early church, it encapsulated everything that they really needed to know. Who is Jesus? He died in our place on our behalf. He was vindicated by the Father and rose again. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead, to redeem and renew his creation, to make all things new. So that's what we're going to look at today. And the way I want to think through it is to look at this passage in Matthew uh, 24, um, that we had read, and we're actually going to cover all of 25 in a just fast burst at the end, because that's where the application comes. But one of the things that the early church knew, based its life on, faced its death with, and communicated in its gospel messages, Jesus Christ is coming, and it's going to be totally unexpected. Jesus Christ is coming, and he's going to judge the world when he does so, and Jesus Christ is coming, so be ready. So let's look at the passage again, beginning at verse 36 of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus Christ is coming, and it's going to be totally unexpected. Look again at 36 through 41. But about the day or hour when Jesus Christ returns, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what happened until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it's going to be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. One of the key things to note about the end of time, about what it means that we await Jesus' return, is we don't know when it's going to happen. The signs will not point to it clearly. Anybody who predicts that they know when it's going to happen is wrong. That's the one thing you can count on. Any book you read which goes, we know when it's going to happen, we see the signs and we can identify it's going to happen in this time period, they're just wrong. Because what Jesus says, nobody knows. God the Father has kept this to himself. The angels don't know. You think you do? I, the Son of Man, the second person of Trinity, have not been told this yet by the Father. You think somehow you will figure it out on your own? When Jesus says we don't know, he means we don't know. And so in part, the way he tries to emphasize that is um, when it actually happens, when I return in my glory, people are not going to be waiting around in a church for my coming. We're not going to climb up to some mountaintop hoping to meet him a little sooner than everyone else. We're not going to hide in underground bunkers. When it occurs, people are going to be doing everyday, ordinary sorts of things. The things you do when you don't know when somebody is coming. You'll be eating and drinking. You'll be marrying and being given in marriage. You'll be doing work in the fields or grinding your grain. Because it's going to be unexpected. And so let me suggest, as a way of setting ourselves up, it's a mistake for us to be overly concerned with the signs of the times and specific dates. All we know is that anybody who does that is going to be wrong. Um, And part of what we need to grapple with then as what about all those kind of predictive prophecies, right? Um, I grew up uh, at a church era particularly fond of long chronologies of the book of Revelation and the end times, where things were divided into odd numbers of weeks, months, days, and years. And often the preceding section of chapter 24 was pointed to as an example of that. Um, and since they're right there, I want to point out, for those of you who come from that tradition of which I've tried to repent over time, you know, um, 
chapter 24 begins with Jesus walking through the temple and his disciples saying, wow, look at these amazing buildings. Because the temple was one of the greatest um, buildings of that age, anywhere in the Roman Empire. It was up on a mountain. It was covered um, in white uh, uh, marble and then overlaid with gold, such that when the sun would hit it, people said you couldn't even see the temple. It was like looking directly at the sun. It was so bright and shining and beautiful. And the disciples are just wowed by this, right? Because they're kind of country bumpkins from the area of Galilee. And Jesus goes, you know, not one of these stones will remain. And they're thinking, how do you destroy something so big, so beautiful? So when Jesus gets them up <clears throat> on the Mount, Mount of Olives and he says, well, so how is this going to happen? When will this happen? Um, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 24, and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And Jesus goes, look, um, don't worry about this. So he begins to describe what will happen. You're going to see false prophets, false messiahs. People are going to fall away from me. There's going to be wars and rumors of war, earthquakes and famines. None of that is my coming. You're going to see people who, um, an increase in wickedness. You're going to see people uh, fighting and being killed. You're going to see persecution like you've never believed. That's just the beginning. That's not me coming yet. You're going to experience such incredible hardship, and the temple is going to be um, thoroughly corrupted in your eyes. And that's going to be your note. You should leave the temple and leave Jerusalem, because at that point, Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Run away and hide. And man, um, if you're up on the roof of your house, take the outside exit. Don't even walk through your house to try to pick up stuff. Run for your lives. Just get out of there. And man, if you're pregnant or it's the Sabbath day, you're just going to be stuck, because it's just going to be a hard time. And where all of that is pointing is really the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is what some of those who were hearing Jesus' words actually saw. It was so destructive when the Romans finally destroyed Jerusalem. Over about a three-year period, probably a million uh, Jews died during the battles that occurred at Judea at that time. Um, some almost 100,000 uh, people from Judea were taken away in captivity. Uh, there are stories in Josephus who was recounting the fall of Jerusalem where a, mo a mother literally killed her own baby, roasted it, and then ate it because she was just so desperately hungry. Right? It was, and that's what Jesus is saying. By, the times will be so horrible if God hadn't cut them short by allowing Jerusalem to fall. Uh, it would be far more terrible than you could ever believe. And then Jesus goes into verses uh, 29. He says, after um, this happens, um, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And he's using language from the Old Testament prophets to say it'll be a complete reordering of what the world is like because when Jerusalem finally falls, he begins to suggest in verse 30, um, what God is doing is he's saying, the old temple system that rejected me and has now reject, will soon reject you, I'm just going to eliminate entirely. It will be my judgment on that religious system and then it will be time for us to declare that Jesus Christ reigns over all the nations of the earth. And my messengers are going to go forward and gather a new people to me, one uh, who know me personally. So that's the setting that Jesus is talking about. The temple is going to fall. It's going to be terrible. But you are going to be spared. And then you are going to run out and alert everybody else that the new temple has come in my person and my presence. And people are going to encounter God in me, not in some building. Jesus is coming. It's going to be totally unexpected. So don't obsess about the signs of the times. Jesus is coming, and he's really going to judge the world while he does it. And you'll notice in that section that we just read, it's an interesting piece. And I want to stop here because um, often we talk about the end times. You know, one of the um, fiction series, uh, which I find somewhat deplorable, uh, takes advantage of the language here about being left behind or taken. 
And I want to work out the analogy really carefully. So look at your Bible text with me. And this is how, what Jesus talks about. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. The question before you all is, is it better to be left behind or to be taken? Now, if I was doing a Bible study training thing with university, I usually make people vote. But I'll spare us that experience. I suspect for almost all of us, if I ask the question, is it better to be left behind or taken, we'd all say, oh, you definitely want to be taken. Right? Who wants to be left behind? For those of us of a certain age, perhaps we all remember that song, right? Life was filled with guns and wars. Um, I wish we'd all been ready. But if you look at the analogy, in Noah's time, was it better to be left behind or taken? By this passage, it was far better to be left behind with Noah, because the people who God judged were taken. Um, in verse 39. And that's what Jesus says. It's just going to be like that. When I come again, some are going to be left behind and some are going to be taken. And as far as Matthew's concerned, it's far better to be left behind because the people who are taken are the people who are taken in judgment. Just like at the time of Noah, the people who were taken away were the people who were taken in judgment. Kind of makes an entire fiction series seem a little bit confusing, I think. Now, the challenge, if you start talking about this, why would we want to be left behind? Don't I want to be with Jesus? What about uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, when it talks about being caught up with Jesus? Well, let's look at that for a second. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's talking to the believers, and they're really concerned. They think Jesus is coming back right away, and they, what they're thinking of is, they're all these believers who've died. What happens to them? Because if Jesus comes and we're alive, clearly we'll reign with him, but are the dead just out of luck? And what Jesus says is this, brothers and sisters, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, we, don't want you, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this is the context, right? Jesus says those who are going to be taken in the last days are being taken for judgment I'm going to judge them. They've rejected me. They've rejected the Father. And I will give them what they've so long desired, an entire experience of the rest of eternity without me. That's the Christian definition of hell. And being without God's presence is so terrible. I'm sure you all know, right, that this Bible strains to describe what it would be like. It's going to be like being burned alive. It's going to be like being trapped in utter darkness. It's going to be the ultimate experience of being alone. Because the God who has sustained you and created you has just finally turned his back on you as you've requested him to do. But for those who are left behind, right, and again, this is what Paul begins to echo in verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be lifted up to meet Jesus. Now, the language that's being used here um, is a, a, a kind of um, a term of art uh, in the Roman world. 
when a king would come and approach a city that he ruled, it was considered really poor form to have for him to get to the city gates by himself. Right? The proper way to greet a guest who is coming to visit you, and this is still true in many parts of the majority world, is that if you know a guest is coming, you don't wait inside till he knocks on your door. You don't even wait at your door to open it for them. You actually go out to greet them as they're coming to the village or as they're coming to the city. And so a Roman emperor coming to the city would several miles away be met by a delegation from that city who greets the emperor, acknowledges his sovereignty, and then welcomes him to the city and then escorts him back to the city on his way there. So that he's being preceded by people from that city saying, the king rules this place. We acknowledge it and we welcome our proper uh, ruler here. And this is the image that Paul's using here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Those who are taken are going to be taken to judgment, and those who left behind will then welcome Jesus' arrival as the rightful king of the universe. And I think, in contrast to people who believe we'll just be taken and zoom away to heaven, um, it'd be a funny image, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus is actually coming from heaven to take reign and rule over the world, for him to go, ah, oh, I'm halfway there, you've met me, let's just go back to heaven. Never mind. The proper um, way that this image works is Jesus has come, we meet him halfway, and then we complete and escort him to the world that he actually reigns and rules. So in some way, the entire question of do we get raptured up and avoid the tribulation is actually, I think, um, not actually, well, what's a gracious way to put it? I don't think that's what the passage is trying to suggest. What the passage in Thessalonians is suggesting, in combination with Matthew, is some people will be taken for judgment. Those of us who remain will greet Jesus, and we're going to welcome him as the rightful ruler of this world, and he's going to come down and remake it and make all things new. And the entire question of does this happen before or after the tribulation, what's really clear from the book of Revelation, I think, if you read it, is um, the church has always experienced persecution, has always experienced tribulation, has always lived in the middle of war, famine, and destruction. And our longing is that God would come and redeem it. Right? Because when Jesus comes, he's going to come establish a new heaven and a new earth, that the goal of the Christian hope is not living in some disembodied future where we walk around in the clouds and play harps all the time, century after century after century, but it's actually returning with God who goes, this broken world, I'm going to fix it. This broken cosmos, I'm going to make it new. I'm going to make all things new, is the refrain that occurs toward the end of Revelation over and over and over. And what John says is, then I saw a new world. And he uses language that comes from um, Genesis 1 and 2, and he says, it's going to be just like that, but even better. Because everything's going to be perfect, and God's actually going to dwell here with us, and it's, oh, it's going to be fantastic. The glory and the honor of the nations are going to be brought in. Humanity will be restored. Creation will be remade. And so that's really the perspective, I think, that makes the most sense of Revelation is rather than um, a long predictive set of prophecies about what will happen, it's, an, adequ it's um, an attempt using imagery and prose and poetry to describe the actual experience of the church now and what it's going to be like. And rather than a linear series of events like, okay, there are going to be seven trumpets, seven bulls, seven seals, though probably in the reverse order since I did it wrong, um, you could read all of Revelation as, hey, seven churches, don't worry about it. I'm in charge. Just be faithful to me. And then John gets caught up into heaven in verses four and five. He says, I see everything centers around the Lord. 
both he who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain, they're the center of our worship. And then there's all this trauma and uh, persecution, pestilence, death and despair. And the question is asked in the middle of chapter 6, how, uh, what about those who are dying on the, for the Lord's sake? What about your people, Lord? And they said, wait, just don't worry. And who can stand at the day of the wrath of the lamb? The answer is really clearly it's those who've been marked and sealed and who are known by Jesus Christ, people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And those are all the seals being opened. And then all of a sudden, the bowls are being spilled out. And it says, well, how about those who don't yet believe? Those who've chosen not to believe? And the answer is, God is going to judge them. And he's going to give them exactly what they want. And then John seems to remind us in the middle, beginning around chapter 15 and forward, the entire cosmos can be understood as God entering the world to defeat the devil, to demonstrate that political power and economic power will not reign. However bestial and terrible they may be, the Lord reigns and he's going to judge it and destroy it, then make all things new. Jesus is coming. He's going to judge the world. And we need to know that. So if Jesus is coming and he's going to be totally unexpected and he's coming and so he's going to judge the world, what's our response as the church? And here's where I want to spend most of our time um, is we need to be ready. And it means being ready in a very particular way. As Jesus has already said, my coming is going to be totally unexpected. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day, on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour where you do not expect him. Let me tell a quick story. I'm of a certain age, so only people who remember Friday nights of a cer- who are about my age may actually understand this story. But when I was um, junior high, maybe elementary school, certainly somewhat into high school years, on Friday nights we would eat together, dinner together as a family, and then my parents would go to Bible study at church. Now, my sister and I were thankfully old enough not to have to go with them because basically they would meet upstairs in Bible study, and down below was um, children chaos. But they were all like really young children chaos, all like these you know, young kids. And my sister and I certainly did not want to be babysitting on Friday night, so we begged and pleaded to be able to stay home. So we would eat dinner. My parents would exit the house between 7.30 and 7.45 with the challenge, clean, the, clean up the house, do the dishes, and put away everything. So when we come house, home, the house is clean. Friday night, for those of you who are of a certain age, you might remember that at 8 p.m. on CBS, a certain TV program, Dallas, was on. (laughs) We found it thoroughly compelling. Sadly for us, at 9 p.m., it was either Fantasy Island or Falcon Crest then came on, providing a two-solid hour block of totally sordid TV soap opera experience for my sister and I. And so the entire goal of Friday night was to watch these two programs, and then we knew we had a 10-minute window after Falcon Crest was over, but before the garage door would open, to wash all the dishes, clean the house, and present the house perfect when my parents would come. This is not how Jesus intends us to live. (laughs) His point, right, is if you knew a thief was coming, wouldn't you be ready for him? And since you know Christ is returning, but you don't know when, be ready all of the time, is his point. Right? Not just when you think the garage door may open and the parents who'd been spending a wonderful time in Bible study being sanctified lose their sanctification at still seeing dirty dishes in the sink and a table unkept. The emphasis here is um, there's this unexpected, unpredictable coming of Jesus, so um, be ready. So what does readiness look like? Right? That's the... $64,000 question. Um, 
And then Jesus gives basically four quick parables, which end verse, chapter 24 and go through chapter 25. So who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. Then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect and an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh my is actually the right response there, spiritually, right? Because of the unpredictability of, unpredictability of Christ's return, this demands that we avoid sin in this passage. And the contrast between a faithful steward and an unfaithful steward, and there's two different kinds of sins here, right? There's the sins of omission, by the unfaithful steward, he fails to do what he was commanded to do, which was care for this household. And then he, uh, he does these sins of commission. He, refu he chooses to do what's forbidden, carousing with drunkards and abusing the other servants. My suggestion would be, what does it mean for us to be ready? Avoid the sins of omission. Don't fail to do what Jesus Christ has already commanded. 99% of what Jesus wants us to do to be ready is already written down. We'll sum it up easily. Maybe this will help the Catalyst team, right? Make disciples of all nations. Do what you're supposed to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Develop into a community which glorifies God by your presence and the way that you worship, by the diversity of the people who are gathered here, by the way you challenge one another, confront one another, and forgive one another. Care for this creation that I've made. Invest in human flourishing to the glory of God. Do the things I've commanded you to do, and then stop doing the things that I've forbidden you. That's what it means to look like to be ready. Do you want to know what it looks like to be ready, he says? He begins to tell a story at the beginning of chapter 25. I'm going to be delayed, so be prepared. See, there are these ten virgins who are waiting to welcome the bridegroom for the wedding night. And they fell asleep as the bridegroom was delayed, as he often is in Palestine, as people are haggling over the bride place. But when he finally came, the ones who were ready lit their torches and were ready to welcome the bridegroom to his bride's house to begin the wedding celebration as they began to go um, to the great party. But the people who were unprepared were just running around desperately trying to find oil. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Right? The issue isn't falling asleep. It's having sufficient oil for the, time, the proper time and what Jesus seems to be saying here is, you can run out of time. You can be so unprepared, having not made the choice that you need to make to devote yourself to Jesus Christ and give your allegiance to him, that at some point when I come, it'll be too late to make another decision. Search all you want, but there's only one person you'll find it in. What does wisdom and preparation look like? How can you be more like <clears throat> the, wise, uh, the wise women who are ready? Well, be industrious with what you've been entrusted, seems to be the point of the next parable, the parable of the talents or the bags of gold, right? A rich man leaves, and he gives each one of his, or three of his servants um, basically five years of wages and says, do something with them while I'm gone. And when I come back, I'm going to take this into account. And so one person, right, uh, reaps a huge reward. The other person does a fair amount. And then one person goes, I think you're really mean, so I just hit it and didn't do anything with it at all. And Jesus says, that's not the way to be wise or be prepared. What have you been entrusted with? As individuals, what have you been entrusted with? I think it's everything that you are and everything that you have. As a church, right, it's the, the reality that we know the gospel. We've met our Lord. We have something to share. As individuals, I think um, 
It's all of who you are, your gender and your ethnicity, your family experiences and your background, the educations that you have, the jobs that you have, the relationships that you've been given, the stewardship of your children, the resources you have, financial and intellectual and emotional, all of that is part of the talents that God has given you. What will you do with it? Be faithful with your investment of it to bring God glory and honor. That's what it means to look like, to be wise and prepared. Be industrious with what you've been entrusted with. Don't just sit there thinking, the master may come and he's kind of mean-spirited. I'm just going to go sit on all this. And then what do you do with those talents? How do you actually invest them? I think that's what the last half of chapter 25 is about, the parable of the sheep and the goats. So Jesus says, one day I'm just going to spread out and tell everybody, some of you are going to go to my right, some of you are going to go to my left. Which one is it going to be? And when people who move into Jesus' right hand go, what, why are we here? It's because they know who Jesus is, and he says, you served me. You advanced my mission and my purposes. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Right? Practically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, you did those things to serve the people that I was trying to reach. That's how I know when you say, and you call me Lord, that I know who you knew, that you know who I am. That's what we do with our talents. You see, that's the challenge of talking about Christ's return, is that it's not just something far off, which, is, which we can ignore, or something so close that we have to live in perpetual terror. Instead, the Bible says, don't worry about the actual time. You can't control it. And if you knew when it was, it would not help you. The main thing to know is Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back in an unexpected time. He's going to come back in a way which will judge the world based on their knowledge of him. He will take away those uh, who've rejected him. And those who know him, he's going to say, you are going to be the group of people who welcome me as I remake this world into something new and wonderful. And together we're going to reign and rule in a very concrete new reality. But until then, live expectantly. Not in terror, not in fear, not in like, oh, he's going to catch me doing something wrong. But instead, oh, Lord, when you came, I was ready. I invested the talents that you gave me. I fed those who were spiritually hungry. I gave water to those who were physically thirsty. I clothed those who were spiritually naked and emotionally bereft. I manifested your presence in every corner of the universe that you gave me access to. And then Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servants. That's exactly what I expected you to do. I left for a while and I've come back and the spheres of responsibility I gave you, it's exactly how I wanted it to be. For my sister and I, it would have been, the dishes are done. The table is clear. Hey, you even cleaned your room. And the TV's not even hot. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, um, this is kind of the endpoint exclamation of what we believe. It's not enough just to have academic belief in the fact that we have a personal God or the nature of humanity or what Jesus Christ has done or the Holy Spirit has accomplished, but this says it matters. It matters because one day if you don't make a decision about what you believe and actually give yourself to it, it'll be too late to do so. <clears throat> it matters because what we believe and what we know 
about the nature of creation, what God, Jesus intends, compels us and defines the kind of mission we're engaged with, right? That's why Habitat for Humanity was birthed out of a Christian sense of responsibility for the poor and has been sustained by other people, but have often been sustained by churches. Because if God desired creation to be a beautiful place, then we desire to be people, and we know that people were created in the image of God, then they need to be treated with dignity and to be provided for. Right? It's going to define our spiritual activities. It's going to define the way that we worship. <clears throat> because this is how we're going to tell Jesus when we face him, we were ready. We did the things that you called us to do. This is why it matters, because we'll be held to account for it. This is why, in some ways, it's the perfect next step for us as you begin the next series of sermons that Dick will be leading you through over the next couple months. So let's practice being ready. Let's learn to develop our own spiritual lives so that we listen and know our God, that we know how to participate and contribute to his mission, that we get gathered up in partnership with him, and that the long run will be like the, 12, the 10 women who's like, we had the stuff that we needed ready. Jesus said, you were great stewards of what you had. You have nothing to be afraid of, and you have great joy in the doing of it. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Lord Jesus, um, forests have died as uh, scholars have tried to explain what the church means by you are coming again. And uh, I confess my own fascination with that um, in the abstract, uh, but my inability to live that out faithfully in the present. So Lord, I pray instead, um, you are coming again. This is good news for a broken world, which desperately needs to know your justice and your mercy. You're coming again, and that's a powerful reminder for me to take my discipleship and my evangelism and mission seriously. You are coming again because you are trustworthy and your promises are sure and they are good. So as the early church taught us to pray, we pray, come Lord Jesus, restore what's broken, bring hope to the hopeless, and then demonstrate your glory and power throughout the earth. In Christ's name, amen.